Welcome to Joey Ito's Conversations. Today's conversation is with Anjali Sastri. We're going to talk about systems dynamics, cybernetics, and society. Hi, Anjali. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Good. Thanks. Um, and uh, I hope some of the people read that great article that you posted. I hope uh, so. On Journal of Design and <laughs> Science. Um, and, uh, uh, but I think while we wait for people to sh- show up, yeah. I mean, can you describe a little bit about what your, your day job is? Uh, so I teach at the Sloan School of Management. Mm-hmm. I love teaching. I right now teach MBAs mm-hmm. and other students. And my passion at the moment, I have several, but one of mm-hmm. them is really understanding how to make goods and services that people need and get them to them in low resource settings. Mm-hmm. So I'm studying frontier markets. And what was explain what a frontier market a is? A frontier market is a market where um, like you don't have a lot of and infrastructure <laughs> and you don't have a lot of competition, but mm-hmm. you often don't have a lot of purchasing power for consumers. I see. So, so, where, so these are in what we would call developing yeah, countries? Yeah, low resource settings. Low resource settings. I basically set out to look for the most <laughs> challenging ways to apply business thinking. Mm-hmm. And this seemed like a good one. Providing social goods and services mm-hmm. in low resource settings in Africa, Asia, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. you know, we're going to eventually <laughs> get, to the, get to the, 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 the theory, but tell, explain a little bit kind of how you ended up there mm-hmm. and, and trace yeah. it all the way back to yeah. like Jay Forster and system yeah. dynamics. So I studied system dynamics at MIT, and we'll talk more about that, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, it bred in me this real interest in complexity. I wanted to understand difficult challenges and not only research them, but use them in teaching. Mm-hmm. And so having taught system dynamics for many years, I decided I'd try to kind of flip my approach mm-hmm. and really go and study um, needs and potential solutions that would challenge my students' assumptions as much as possible. Okay. So, so, so I so you're, said- you're teaching, but actually it's, you're doing applied work. I am, right? I am. I'm really interested in, if we teach students in the classroom how to analyze a complex system, what happens when you put them in one? Okay. And, right, and how can I help them think through mm-hmm. the knock-on effects, the um, compensating feedback, the positive feedback mm-hmm. loops, all of, that, all of which can kind of change the trajectory mm-hmm. of a community or an organization or even a country. So I want to give my students the chance to experience something really challenging mm-hmm. and then encourage them to start thinking in systems about but, it. But you, you say you like teaching, but I've heard that you've been a big chunk of your time in the field yes working on projects so is that yeah. is that what you call teaching or yeah so so this is a great tradition here at MIT since its founding mm-hmm. um, and formalized in many different ways but using the field as a way to teach people mm-hmm. and we have traditions in all of the schools certainly in all the engineering schools and in science I was a physics student here mm-hmm. I did a Europe that I started the day I came to MIT. (laughs) So there's a huge tradition here, and I'm really interested in using action learning methods Mm -hmm. where students roll up their sleeves and work in real-world settings, Mm -hmm. where they're directly applying what they learn in the classroom, and Mm -hmm. I'm pushing them to think using the systems thinking tools. So so describe 
systems thinking and systems dynamics, yeah. I think, and, and yeah. describe it as if we've never heard of it before. <laughs> so everyone knows this at one level. It's something you know intuitively and your grandma told you, you know, everything's connected. There's the idea that we can kind of separate phenomena, things, groups of people from each other is often an artifact that we have to impose to make things tractable or, or analyzable. But that idea of being able to ignore other things else, the famous ceteris paribus, right? All else being equal is a convention that we use in order to be able to look at things in certain ways. It's not the way the world is. Mm -hmm. The world is, everything is both a cause and an effect at the same time. Everything matters at some level, at the right scale. Mm -hmm. So there's this huge insight we're all kind of, we know on some level, and yet the way we teach and learn and analyze mm -hmm. takes us very far from that. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a little story about how I got started. Okay. Back in this physics, Europe, so Europe is the undergraduate research opportunities program mm -hmm. here at MIT. I was really interested in physics for good. Mm -hmm. And so I went. Physics for good. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I went and started to understand how nuclear weapons work. Yeah. So we were actually began by looking at how you model weapons effects. Mm -hmm. First, the physics of it, how you model the. Because we weren't doing, we weren't testing nuclear weapons, so we needed to get ever more sophisticated modeling mm -hmm. so we could understand them without actually using them. Mm -hmm. This was in the mm -hmm. 80s. Mm -hmm. But then I started to really think about, so what if a weapon does detonate? We're computing the blast thermal and radiation effects. Mm -hmm. What effect will it have on society? Mm -hmm. So we had done studies of this back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and these studies had informed at that time as the Reagan administration's position on Star Wars. Mm -hmm saying, if a few weapons get through, it's okay. There is such a thing as the survivable nuclear war, mm -hmm. right? We had mm -hmm. this notion that there was some level of attack we could tolerate. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's worth investing in, say, a missile defense shield. Mm -hmm. And I try to look at the underlying research behind that. And a lot of that was done by economists using a method called input-output modeling. Mm -hmm. So that's looking at the economy almost as just a picture, if you're thinking of math, a matrix of numbers. Mm -hmm. So the inputs are one matrix, the economy is the middle matrix, output is the product of the two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you model the economy that way, you're assuming all the relationships between inputs and outputs are static. Mm -hmm. So clearly that doesn't hold in the real world. Are you making fun of economists? No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but you know, economists, Economics had to take that view when we didn't have sophisticated yep. computational mm -hmm. tools. Mm -hmm. uh, and it serves its purpose really well mm -hmm. when the conditions don't vary a lot. Mm -hmm. But pushing on that, I, I kept realizing we need to look at things dynamically and mm -hmm. drop our assumptions that we mm -hmm. understand the links between input and output. Mm -hmm. Anyway, long story short, that led to five years of my doing research here as an undergrad. And so the year how you after. got sent to Russia? That Russia interest was a sidebar interest, okay. but I, I was really interested, I guess I was interested, I was a peacenik. Uh -huh. I was really interested in understanding countries like Russia, mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I studied Russian mm -hmm. language and literature. So, so, so let's go back to yeah. like something you said at the beginning, which yeah. is, so it's about the fact that everything is connected to everything yeah. else, and that, to use one of the words we've been using lately, it's reductionist, to just look at the objects yeah. separately. Yeah. Um, and a lot of science is about, as you said, controlling for yeah. like yeah. randomized control studies yeah. and 
get rid of the the placebo effect or whatever and trying to understand each mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a compositional view of the yeah. world right um so i guess two questions so one do you think that's the natural state of things in that do humans naturally tend to that or is that our acad western academia and then how do you how do you actually think about these complex systems in a, yeah. a way that you can explain to people i think we've got both things operating all the time. I think we have a pull towards a sort of reductionist simplification. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time, we have this intuition. And in many cases, it's really baked into our cultural knowledge and our wisdom that things are not mm -hmm. separable. Well, we kind of know it, right? Exactly. Yeah, like, no one would disagree with that yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's always present. Um, it, it is really interesting to me. So people have been taught on statistics. So all MIT students understand correlation is not causation, mm -hmm. but then they often shy away from making any causal argument. I often have this mm -hmm. battle with my students because then they'll say, well, nothing is really knowable at that level. And I guess right. it is. We actually do know some right. things, uh, you know, are. And, and, and that's the problem with scientists. <laughs> yeah. And the, I think we saw this in climate. Where scientists will never say yep. anything is for sure because it's yep. all probabilistic, and someday yep. you may be misproved. But yeah. but you still have to make decisions yep. based on probabilistic assumptions. Yeah. And I think the idea, and maybe this gets into sort of how people make decisions, but this this kind of strive for complete accuracy, yeah. I think, makes things. I know. Yeah. So Anna, some days when I think about my life, I think maybe the best way to make the world better would be teach kids about science and mm -hmm. logic and because I, I feel that everyone needs to we need to understand consume science appropriately and understand scientific methods but also understand what it means when a finding is presented mm -hmm. what it means that uh, we have a certain confidence level or we've got mm -hmm. and, and I think it's really hard to convey that through the general press mm -hmm. and it, climate is one area diet is another you just keep seeing yeah debates where actually there's not that many debates but yeah. it's framed that way well, yeah. well that, i think that's that's one of the biggest problems that we have is that we have this kind of simplified way of having arguments and yeah. making decisions so yeah. i think that you can actually it's very difficult to have a debate uh, about any of these complex systems yeah. and 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 so i guess yeah. a question that i have and maybe you do this when you're teaching but what can you like describe in a simple way, like if you were talking to the kids mm -hmm. and trying to explain to them how to understand and maybe even intervene or influence a complex system, let's say, like like the climate or the market. I mean, do you have an? Is, is it, do you have a elevator so, pitch? <laughs> yeah, I think there are a couple of things to really understand, and I think the first idea is to understand the difference between stocks and flows. Mm -hmm. So, how much carbon we emit per year is the flow. Mm -hmm. This is the rate at which we're releasing carbon. But that carbon and other greenhouse gases that get released to the upper atmosphere sit there for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's the stock. Mm -hmm. And it's often shocking for students when they understand we could actually cut the flow to zero and we would still have the stock there for decades to come and we would still have climate effects. Mm -hmm. And so I think 
that level, and we see the same issue playing out with the debt and the deficit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, people um, trying to really reduce the deficit, which is a great goal, but reducing the deficit, we still are carrying a debt. Mm -hmm. The deficit is just the incremental addition per year. Mm -hmm. So getting people to really intuitively understand the difference between a stock and a flow, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which again, I think we do get it intuitively when you think of, you know, bathtubs. bathtubs yeah. yeah, that's the standard example. Um, but how does that then map onto the language we use to talk about complex challenges? Mm -hmm. Maybe we should be forcing these uh, mm -hmm. simple analogies so mm -hmm. that every time somebody's talking about the rate of something versus the stock or state of something, mm -hmm. they actually identify that really clearly. Mm -hmm. So that's just point one. But that is a really important point mm -hmm. to, to convey and to take on board. And Something we find, and my colleague John Sturman does a lot of this really interesting research, where we teach the concepts in class about complex systems, um, but then when we administer, especially when they're pen and paper tests, mm -hmm. to test their sort of dynamical reasoning, mm -hmm. the kind of hardwired problems in inferring dynamics that we all are born with are mm -hmm. still there. Mm -hmm. So even though we can sort of intellectually realize, oh, it's a you know, first order differential mm -hmm. equation, when mm -hmm. we ask people to draw the trajectory of the stock and the flow, mm -hmm. they often will, for instance, draw them to be the same shape. Mm -hmm. But they're not. Mm -hmm. One is the accumulation of the other. Yeah. One is the, yeah. So interestingly, I mean, it, it's, calculus sounds hard, but it's sort of like that. It's, it's exponentials exactly. and derivatives, right? And, exactly. And it's, it's kind of the opposite side yeah. of the argument yeah. that the yeah. singularity people make, yeah. that humans don't understand exponentials yeah. intuitively. I think people don't understand derivatives and, and, yeah. and second order effects. And yeah. But I think you learn it. So like for me, examples are like Lunar Lander, yeah. where you're just doing little shots, yep. but it just changes the, yep. the, the and, and then you also have things like when I'm a disc jockey and you're trying yeah. to get two, we don't use them as much yeah. anymore, but you're trying to get two records to go yeah. into sync. Yeah. Um, you can change the speed, yeah. but you actually have to get the beats to match and the speed to yeah. match. And yeah. this is like this very weird handle yeah. that doesn't really affect exactly the position of the disc. And yeah. so there are a lot of mechanical things that you yes. can learn, like the bathtub, right? Like yep. you can change this, but it doesn't immediately change the temperature of the water. And I think, you know, Seymour Papert, who is one of the founding faculty here, mm -hmm. I mean, he has this wonderful story about how he was given gears as a child. And playing with the physical gears gave him the model in his brain to then think about all these other things. And so maybe there's a theory of learning about how to get kids yep. to understand things like stocks and flows and exponentials using things yep. like, because gears are one way to learn about yep. um, derivatives. Um, I think, you know, I'm thinking a lot about what's going on in a bathtub is another one. But yeah, because because I think to your point is I think you kind of have to get and because you can get an intuitive sense. And I think yeah. once you get the intuitive sense and then you start to imagine how all these systems connect to each other, yeah. uh, you get it. And I think this is sort of I wrote an article about the about sort of explainability and recently. And I was thinking a lot about how if you are a uh, indigenous person in a natural environment, mm -hmm. you see and feel the, the systems going yeah. on in an intuitive way. Yeah. And so you might not be able to explain w why you think this is good yeah. and this is bad, but you, you have an intuitive understanding. And I think um, Josh Tannenbaum here yeah. in Brain and Cognitive Science talks about building something that's like a physics engine for your brain, that yeah. a child kind of intuitively knows that this is likely to fall yeah. over as unstable because they built a model in their head, right? Right, and they can't always give you the uh, 
language-based explanation. That's right. Right? They'll say that'll fall over, that won't. Right, right. But and and what's also interesting is we do know you can actually trace child development by looking at whether they make those right predictions mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. Like Piaget and, famously talked about and, that. And it is yeah. probabilistic, right? So yes. it's not like you know for sure. Right. And the example that I used was yeah. I got a trip from a paper was those rocks that are standing up that people yeah. stack up that are improbable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we it, it makes our it may, it looks like an illusion because it's unlikely. And our brain is our physics engine is designed to act on likely outcomes. Yeah. But in real life, there are unlikely things. And I think this yeah. is sort of gets to the point about the scientists right. is that you always imagine spherical right. cows and very right. unlikely right. things that are easier to understand, yeah. like world without friction, yeah. or the fact that clinical trials are only allowed on 3% yeah. of Americans because there are only 3% yeah. qualify for yeah. clinical trials if you try to control for all of this other stuff. And so a lot of our theory is based on this idea of you're trying to get perfect knowability when the rest yeah. of the world actually is completely random and probabilistic. So then what's the antidote, right? What's, are you going to be anti-science or skeptic? We have to all be skeptics always, for sure, at some level. Yeah. But I do think another, I think, I really believe, what we have to do is recognize that everything is working knowledge and mm-hmm. each new you know, glob of experience can allow us to build out a better model or better mm-hmm. explanation or better kind of theory. Yeah. And, and we have to be able to talk to each other about that. That's something we don't always teach. Yeah. We yeah. teach the opposite, in fact, how to pare away and mm-hmm. focus and set aside other points of view. Mm-hmm. How do you actually say, well, our science gets us this far, but there are all these questions. Here's some new experience that's coming mm-hmm. in. It isn't yet rising to the level of scientific evidence, yeah. but it's making me realize we probably need to add this other factor well, in. Well, or, I think that's where the kind of interdisciplinary conversation yeah. goes. And I, maybe yeah. we can talk a little bit about yeah. the fact that I think cybernetics was yeah. quite interdisciplinary. It where was. you had, you know, Gregory Bateson and you yeah. had, you know, uh, Bucky Fuller and all these people. And I think the Macy conferences yeah. sort of brought them together. And I think yeah. we're trying to do something like that at the Media Lab. But yeah. but cybernetics kind of disappeared, right? Yeah. And, and systems dynamics, I won't say disappeared because you're here, yeah. but it's gone from a really interdisciplinary, massive movement mm-hmm relatively massive mm-hmm. movement to one where there are a, a sprinkle of people around and they've mostly gone to application rather than trying to sort of establish it as some big huge academic domain so but but it seems yeah. like we need it more than ever why why, is it, why isn't it the Every, biggest this thing is the age-old question so i first <laughs> discovered system dynamics when trying to model those nuclear weapons effects back mm-hmm. in the 80s and realized we have to if we want to understand anything complex we need non-linear dynamical models. I was totally fell in love with it, mm-hmm. even as an undergrad. And ever since then, the group I sit in here at, at MIT, we are doing amazing work, but it's a small group. Mm-hmm. We want to change the world, and we need to keep working on how to do that. Right now, the world does go through phases, though. So mm-hmm. we went through a whole complex systems kind of phase in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing systems thinking ideas really so, so coming up. So was that up. like the chaos and, yep. and the Santa Fe? And, and yep, that, agent-based okay. stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a huge you know, resurgence. Yeah. And system dynamics can be applied and is very relevant in that so, same yeah, domain. Okay, okay. And the cycle before that was like Bolt of Atomic Scientists, Jay Forster, you guys doing the... 
poverty. And they were the world models. There were these humongous, yeah, there was yeah. urban dynamics, there was world dynamics. Yeah, was, they were it, models of big, hairy problems. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and why didn't that continue? So this, that's a fascinating question. I've thought about this a lot. Uh-huh. You know, because we need those. Well, we have yeah, them, I guess. We, we do we still, still have them. them. And certainly when you look at today's climate models, um, yeah. there are system dynamics climate models and many of the other sort of discipline-based models have, this, have elements. Mm-hmm. Every good model has feedback in it and yeah, yeah, differentiates yeah. stocks and flows. Um, so we still, those traditions are still living on. They're not always labeled the same mm-hmm, way um, mm-hmm. and they don't always follow the same methods. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's... And another thing you could also say, mm-hmm. perhaps, and I talk about this a bit in the article, maybe it actually succeeded. Like, what was I the see, point of the limits to growth model? Right, it right. was to change our behavior. Silent Spring came out. We did. So explain limits to growth. So limits to yeah. growth was a really bold really interesting study um, that was commissioned by the Club of Rome, a group of industrialists mm-hmm. um, who said, you know, let's just model the biggest problems in the world mm-hmm. and figure out what to do. And this simple, it is a simple system dynamics model mm-hmm. was designed to really lay out what will happen if the world population, um, if we model the world population, pollution and finite space and the effects of industrial activity. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been critiqued on many grounds, but part of what it argued, which I do think is still right there staring us in the face, is that nothing physical can grow forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Knowledge maybe can grow forever. You know, Love maybe can grow forever. But once you put a physical bound around something, it cannot physically grow forever. So the huge question that that study raised, which was back in the 70s, is how are we going to encounter these limits? Mm -hmm. Are we going to see them coming up and restrain or manage or plan our activity? Are we going to go find another planet to live on? Are we going to bump up against the limits and then figure out what to do Mm -hmm. once we encounter them? And then since then, this huge debate has also been, are we seeing signs of bumping up against the limits or Mm -hmm. not? How Mm -hmm. literally do we take the limits to growth Mm -hmm. scenarios? Mm -hmm. You know, we haven't run out of cadmium or Mm -hmm. helium or whatever. So does that that mean the model's not true? Mm -hmm. Or is global warming a manifestation of that limit? It, it, it begets a lot of kind of deep it, philosophical it, discussions. It was, it was many years ago, but I remember being at one of the World Economic Forum retreats, and I was in the sustainability group, which was right next to the financial crisis. Mm. After, and we made fun, oh, yeah, your title should be, we didn't see it coming. And then they said, yours should be, we saw it coming, but didn't do anything. <laughs> and it's really interesting how, yeah. you know, in yeah. one case you yeah. have the models didn't work. Yeah. In another case, we have a model that I yeah. kind of predicted yes. as it, it's been getting right. better, but right. we see, and it's difficult. So there's, I think, one question, which is how do you model accurately? Yeah. And then the other question is, once you have the model, how do you do anything about it? And yeah. I think the problem with these wicked problems is that the intervention is really difficult. And, you know, I think yeah. we talk about Donella Meadows and her, yeah. you know, where you intervene yeah. in systems. And you talked about love, yeah. which is, I think, where she ended up yeah. towards the end, yeah. which is how do we get, you know, and is yeah. it more, is, is, climate change going to happen more through something that looks like the hippie movement yeah. or more like something like cap and trade? Right. You know, do you have a view? Of- so I've been thinking about this a bit. Um, I, uh, I've been following the news on Cape Town. So Cape Town mm-hmm. is running out of water, right? Zero day was due in April, then pushed back to May. And mm-hmm. yesterday the announcement was 
we might be able to fend off zero day this year. So zero day is the day when all of Cape Town's water supplies will run out. Wow. So they've had no real rains last year and very little this year. Mm-hmm. But what happened? Cape Town activated itself. A new radio station, a new radio program was born mm-hmm. that gave people ideas every single day about how to save water, mm-hmm. how to change their behavior, and people change their behavior. Yeah. So what happens next? Do people now say, oh, warnings about running out of water were overblown, we're not going to, t-? or do they say, guys, we can change the world, we just avoided zero day. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have the counterfactual here mm-hmm. against which you have to juxtapose your actions yeah. and your experience. Yeah. It is hard. Yeah. That's why we need not only good science, I think we need really good art and literature, and we need all these things to be made vivid mm-hmm. and visceral and kind of real. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. really good reporting, we need storytelling. Mm-hmm. I think all these things need to feed into our understanding of what the world could be like. Either disasters we just avoided, mm-hmm. like Cape Town for mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, and maybe with Limister Growth was followed by Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, um, and then the burgeoning of these regulations on toxic releases mm-hmm. that has really made America mm-hmm. you know, a cleaner place. Water is cleaner, mm-hmm. air is cleaner. Yeah. These things are all part of a bigger mm-hmm. narrative about how the pieces fit together. And, and, and I think it's true <laughs> that like, humans are very resilient once you hit bottom. Mm-hmm. And I think Japan's like that yeah. after the war, after yeah. Fukushima. Yeah. But with fluctuation amplification and yeah. the technology becoming so much more effective, let's use that word, uh, yeah. like nuclear bombs and things, yeah. that at some point there's nothing to bounce back from because you were no longer yeah. here, right? So, right? so I think that's kind of an interesting yeah. question is if we're a series of corrections yeah. whenever we have disasters. Um, it, and it may, because I think the question is, can we self-regulate without hitting a wall? Or right. do we always bounce back from slamming into the wall? So the big insight from system dynamics is you can bounce back after you've hit a wall if the delay times are short. And if the uh, residence time or the, the sort of time that something sits in a stock is short. But if you've got long delays and if you accumulate, whether they're microplastics in the ocean or CO2 in the upper atmosphere, if they're going to have a long residence time, we cannot wait till we feel the effects because those things are going to hang out there for Mm -hmm. a long, long time. So, and this is where a lot of people then link our kind of, don't want to go too evolutionary psychology here, but you know the fact that we're not that wired to notice things that move slowly, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we habituate ourselves very quickly to slow-moving change, mm-hmm. and we notice fast-moving crises. Mm-hmm. So we need these other methods to mm-hmm. somehow drive home. If we go down this course, here's mm-hmm. where we could end up, or here's what could happen. That reminds me of Stuart Brand's pace layering, mm-hmm. where you have these different things like nature and, and infrastructure and then the fashion at the top, which is very fast. Yeah. But his opinion is that the slow-moving 
systems. And this is, I think, part of the yeah. thinking behind the 10,000-year clock is yeah. that the slow-moving things is actually where deep memory is and yeah. where these long trajectories are and that we tend not to pay attention to the things that move very slowly, um, especially as our society tends to have a shorter and shorter attention span and, and infrastructure is kind of boring, you know. And, yeah. um, um, and so, so in addition to, I think, the complexity, which is really interesting and and the point that you're making about these delays in large stocks being actually the thing that prevents us from being responsive and, and agile. How, how do we, to, to use Stuart Brands, how do we take along now and say, yeah. you know, how do you describe these problems? So, I, I sit at an educational institution, right? So I always think part of the answer has to be teaching. Mm -hmm. So really getting the facts out for instance, about residence time of plastic in water mm -hmm. or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that's one point is mm -hmm. simply teach people about some of the physics, <laughs> some of the, mm -hmm. is that enough? Not really. I don't think that's enough to really make people change their predilection for the time horizon that they make their decisions mm -hmm. with. So this is where people from finance and econ might step in. They say, well, what you need are just financial mechanisms that kind of force a different time horizon, I see. you know, where you value the future more than right. we currently value, than right. we by default okay. value it. Right. 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 So this is why we talk about putting a price on species or a price on some avoided or some or, or, avoided ill. Or that we should allow tax benefits for long-term capital gain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> It gets really complicated, yeah, yeah. and it gets really political. So yeah. how do you then, uh, yeah, that, and those debates don't really happen at these intersections mm -hmm, uh, across mm -hmm. the different disciplines very much. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think that you can actually see a similar an analogy. I also study organizational behavior. If you're the leader of an organization and you need to change course, how do you do it if you're not in crisis, mm -hmm. right? Do you, you, do you, you paint a vision of what we could be mm -hmm. or do you somehow create or amplify an existing issue to create a mm -hmm. burning platform? Mm -hmm. uh, and are those our only two choices? Yeah, yeah. Well, so let me yeah. ask you, it's related to this. So, because as a physicist turned systems dynamics person who's looking at the real world, um, I think you mentioned once to me that when you see an exponential curve, um, it's scary, yeah. right? Because that means a runaway feedback loop. And we have people in Silicon Valley that worship this idea of exponential growth, that the abundance will bring enough stuff to make everyone yeah. happy. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't yeah. know why I to put you on the spot, but what yeah. do you think about this idea that if, if only we had enough intelligence, resources, we would solve these problems by just kind of... Um... It makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me because if you don't have a distribution, if you don't have an equity of opportunity and of basic needs, none of the, the, the top of the spectrum getting more and more doesn't add any value to the rest of the world. Like, how can it be any other way but then to figure out how to create the right opportunities for everyone. What about I, I just don't understand. Income and trickle down, you don't... I don't believe in trickle down at all, but I, I don't know who, yeah. who does. Yeah. But, but what about, what about the, the, if the, 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 the 
people who are up here are smart enough it's, to say we're going to sh share our, our wealth. And it's that basic income enough? Is it all about the individual opportunity? That's what the question is. Mm -hmm. Or is there a collective decision-making and um, kind of perspective that we need that's different from just saying each person needs individual opportunities? So I agree. Mm -hmm. There, are, Every person should have a chance at you know, a healthy life and at mm -hmm. an education mm -hmm. and at you know, and needs their rights to be preserved and so on, clearly. But is that enough to ensure we get to the right collective outcome? Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so. I don't think that alone. I think that's why we have, look at Eleanor Ostrom's work and lots of other, mm -hmm. saying, look, the, the market is not the only mechanism. We do create and we are creating and we will continue to create other social mechanisms for ensuring that we preserve important mm -hmm. assets, including culture, including, you know, non-economic so assets. I'm going to see, did you say something like um, make, make it better? I'm going to, I wanted to get a sense from you as a systems person, because one of the other mm -hmm. oversimplified things I think is when society optimizes for something yeah. too simple. And when, yeah. when, when, when you think of a system, how do you, let's say, measure or how do you, what, what do you think is better? Um, how do you, how do you define that? It's a that? really good question. I am notorious. Every pa student paper I read that has a way to optimize, I always circle it and, because that invo that implies we have this sort of omniscient knowledge of what the, mm -hmm. you know, function is that we're trying to optimize for. We do know some things. We do know that there are measures that, and I guess we need a more of a collective dialogue. So maybe I just should be mm -hmm. asserting this for myself. But the system's own resilience, mm -hmm. so its ability to kind of handle unexpected mm -hmm. crises or opportunities mm -hmm. is kind of something we should be aiming for more of, right? Mm -hmm. We should be aiming for more resilience. Mm -hmm. um, Although we should be, the, the, when you say system too, yep. like there are always meta systems of yep. systems. So it de also depends a little bit on which subsystem at what yep. time scale, right? Everything, always. Right. Right. Yeah, it okay. makes it really hard to have any of these conversations because at <laughs> any point you could challenge the whole, you know, yeah, you the basis of any, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, but I didn't mean to do that. So. No, but resilience and yeah. sort of, and if you have a new policy, you could ask, is it robust to changing conditions? Yeah. So if I think it's going to be better to run our company this way or run our economy this way, you could ask the question of, is this proposed policy dependent on a very narrow set of conditions mm -hmm. <laughs> for it to you know, deliver as promised? Mm -hmm. Or is it able to handle a wide variation mm -hmm. of conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So you could ask, it's sort of the robustness for, mm -hmm. of policy maps onto the resilience yep, yep, of yep. the city or the state or the family or mm -hmm. whatever. And those I think you could, I think a lot of people would defend those as mm -hmm. core kind of qualities that mm -hmm. we need more of or we need to preserve. Mm -hmm. I do think that um, diversity in many diversity in many different attributes is an important. We know that you know teams perform better when there's a diversity of opinion. Mm -hmm. We know that um, schools and communities perform better when every type of neurological, physical, and other difference is accommodated and celebrated. We do know these things, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we do know there's that aspect. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting question. What are we, what are we trying to optimize for? Mm -hmm. And why is it wrong to optimize for, you know, current income? Mm -hmm. 
And, and, and do you know Martin Nowak? He's a program for evolutionary dynamics, and he, he studies the mathematics of evolution. And, and it's really interesting. He describes evolution as a search Mm-hmm. system, not, yep. not actually yes. a, an optimization yes. system, I, which I think is yes. really interesting. Yep. And, he, and he talks about, if you look at yeah. like the, the, the discovery of photosynthesis, it only happened once. All photosynthesis comes from this yeah. one yeah. cyanobacteria yeah. Um, mutation. Yeah. It was also one of the largest extinction events in the history of the, the planet because it completely changed the balance of the ecosystem. And it's not clear if it's good or bad. I mean, probably good because we have a lot of diversity now. And there are all these interesting instances in evolution. You know? And I think um, what's interesting to also to think about is um, if you think about optimization as a way to try to find some equilibrium state, mm-hmm. um, e- even with mm-hmm. r- robustness. Mm-hmm. But it could be that the organisms that were living there back before cyanobacteria were, were, well, or, or felt perfectly <laughs> yeah. at equilibrium and yeah. happy. And suddenly yeah. this idiot comes and yeah. starts changing, accumulating, well, also he said that the continents allowed the yeah. accumulation of oxygen that yeah. was toxic for some, taking yeah. lead out of, uh, there was all the iron out of the, yeah. the ocean, just destroying this whole system. Yeah. But then a new system was created. And yeah. so, and, and, and I don't want to do a doomsday scenario, but, but it is interesting to think about when you suddenly yeah. take the, the time scale to billions of years, yeah. it, it changes everything, right? I know. And so why? Why? Yeah. People, I, I used to have a t-shirt, you know, when I was a kid that said, save the planet. And, and people would always ask me, do you really mean that? Like, the planet's going to survive. You're yeah. actually talking about saving, you know, human society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The planet will probably you know, be there no matter what. So what are we trying to save? What's the, is human, we're humans. Yeah. It's, we're going to want to preserve ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and I think kind of our, our, our good life is a yeah. life where we feel like we've done something fruitful. Yeah. And I think that it's sort of a sensibility. And, and, and I sort of want to maybe end with one idea, which was in um, 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 Pitt Mothersill's paper because she's a designer yeah. Yeah. and I thought she did a really good job of um, describing a sl- slight difference in her view between maybe engineers and designers where you can kind of go um, compositionally towards a solution based on a problem mm-hmm. or you can kind of squint your eyes and have a sensibility and sort of and I think this is the difference between yeah. design and, and yeah. engineering where where you, 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 you can get your head around and bring your intuition into yeah. a tr- problem-solving uh, yeah. process in a yeah. way that maybe people who want everything very uh, logical don't. And but the two can also join because mm-hmm. this is, I think, one of the more really exciting ways that systems thinking is being used. Can we actually pull out a vision for what we want and then sort of engineer it in a way, like mm-hmm. use systems thinking to say, if this is the world we want to live in, is this what we feel is right? Mm-hmm. What do we then need to change? How right. do we need to arrange things in mm-hmm. order for that to be possible? Mm-hmm. And you can do that analytically and you can do that using systems mm-hmm. thinking. So yeah. I, I, I actually really like that idea. Use these other methods to kind of really develop a internally consistent and something that feels really good, a a picture of what we want, Mm -hmm. and then figure out by multiple methods Mm -hmm. how we might get there. So that's the questioning and then answering thing. And I think the key is to make sure that our questions are good and plugged into the sensibilities of nature rather than some sort of self-referential external 
eyes sort of uh, I think that's that's that maybe this is a, another thing yeah. about stocks is that I feel like we have a bunch of values that we created in the yeah. mass production yeah. industrial post industrial revolution age when when we just need more stuff yeah and that the that piece and I, maybe this is too much of a metaphor but it feels like the values and the paradigm of measuring things with GDP and money even though the economists have gone beyond GDP. Society still uses mm -hmm. GDP, and so we we, we have the these flow. economic right. artifacts yep. that sit in the atmosphere yep. for yep. a long time that yep. people attach yep. their intuition and their sensibility to. So yep. they're solving problems yep. that don't represent the modern yep. thinking of the day yep. of how what we need to be doing. Yeah, and that I guess gets back to your teaching, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the teaching, and then the I think also telling the story so that yep. when you see it and understand how maybe one community or one um, company creates a different kind of reality and a different set of relationships that mm -hmm. we actually figure out what's happening and tell the story so that others can hear it. Mm -hmm. And then also I really believe strongly we have to pair analysis with action mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. all of our students and help them and us to keep learning about how to take wise action, mm -hmm. how to call it when you've messed up, and how to kind of unpack the relationships that are revealed only by taking action. So one, because I could, people could hear what you're saying and, and wonder, is this going to be more kind of ivory-towered, egg-headed, mm -hmm. thinking about and talking about things? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is where I really believe education needs to go, is to cultivate that big picture sense, mm -hmm. link it to taking real action in the world, even at a small scale, and then the ability to come back and say, mm -hmm. here's what I think is working, or here's what isn't, or I discovered this new link. Mm -hmm. That kind of loop is, I think, the loop that we're all gonna need. And maybe we can start at MIT. I hope so, okay. I think. We already have, <laughs> we just need to do more of it. Yeah, yeah. all right, thank you, Andrew. Sure, thank you. Thank you.